the king was chasing him. He was forced into outlawry. This is what we fail to understand. David was not an outlaw because he was, he was involved in crime. He was an outlaw because Saul thought he should be able to manipulate who the heir of his kingdom would be. That makes him an idolater. I, I remind you of Tozer's definition of idolatry. Tozer's definition is uh, idolatry is entertaining low thoughts of God. Thinking God is other than he has revealed himself to be. So if I can control my future, then I'm effectively an idolater. Does this make sense to you? Yeah. So, so David is forced into the status of an outlaw, not because he's done something illegal, but because Saul is not a submissive servant of the Lord who is the true king of Israel. Saul is only his servant and always has been and has never been otherwise. David comes nearest failure when he forgets that he is the servant and not the king. So in his treatment of Bathsheba, in his treatment of her husband Uriah, he has forgotten that he's not king. He thinks he's still king, and he's come to the edge of a complete failure in his, in his, in his reign because he forgets these things. When you can manipulate your future, when you think you can control, I have this in place, this will control my future, I can manipulate that. I can make sure it works right. Then you've adopted the, the point of view of idolatry. Am I making sense to you? Yes. yes. One other point of view would be anything you value more than God. Yeah. Yeah, but because I think I can... See, I only value what I can control. And yet, when I can control it... Think about personal relations. When you think you can control another person, you really come to despise them. Yeah, so you really don't, you, you despise whatever you think you can control. I am bigger than that. I control. So the, the, the issue is who has the right to define the future, who has the right to control the future, and who then am I, how then am I going to relate to that? So if God has the right to control the future, he has the, the right. I, I, I started to mention to you a moment ago, Next time you're reading through the, the, the New Testament especially, I want you to take special pains to discover what the New Testament says about suffering. It's, it's critical that you understand this. I gave an assignment several years ago in a class to develop from, um, I don't remember what the exact form of the assignment was. It was on the books, um, Hebrews to Revelation, to develop a theology of suffering based on those books. Uh, folks, Revelation is full of the theology of suffering. If you, if you haven't understood that, you, if all that you see there is the second coming of Jesus, then you've really missed the message because in light of the return of Jesus, we are called to suffer and to be steadfast in faith in the midst of it. Uh, if you miss Hebrews and James and First Peter on suffering, um, there's some of it in Second Peter, First uh, John, got not, not a lot. There's a little bit in Third, is it third John, uh, but Revelation is just jammed with it. Then uh, watch for that, but watch for it from Matthew through Revelation, and let that reconstruct your view of suffering. Uh, suffering. I, how many times have I told you I can stand anything but temptation and pain? <laughs> otherwise, 
I can bear anything. Uh, but that's the point. Um, uh, we are called to hardship. Uh, what, what does Paul say in Timothy? To Timothy. Endure hardship as a good soldier. Soldiers are not called to ease. They're not called to safety. They're not called to comfort. Yes? So chapter 3 is going to carry on this message of idolatry. In chapter 2, um, uh, verses uh, 5 through 22, he is focused on the idolatry of, of, of Judah and its outcome in judgment. He's going to rehearse that again in chapter 3. And he's going to do it in two parts. In verses 1 to 11, uh, all classes of Israel, of Judah, will be humbled. So, verse 1. For behold, the Lord God of hosts is going to remove from Jerusalem and Judah both supply and support, the whole supply of bread and the whole supply of water, the, the, the mighty man and the warrior, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of fifty and the honorable man, the skillful enchanter. Uh, I will make mere lads their princes, and capricious children will rule over them. Everything you thought you could depend on, every thought, everything you thought would give you a secure future is going to be gone. Uh, so, verse 1, all the supply of water and of bread. Verses 2 and following, every leader that you thought you could depend on is going to be gone. And all that's going to be left are mere children to rule. Um, this became most obvious uh, back in the late 90s in our country. Um, what are the ways God judges a nation when he begins the judgment? By the way, our judgment began a long time ago. But one of the ways he judges a nation when he begins the judgment is by giving them people who have an immature uh, uh, way of life. They put fools in charge. You thought you could trust in your wisdom. I'm going to take it away. You thought you could trust in your military. I'm going to take it away. I was in Australia several years ago, and a fellow that invited me there, and we, I, I did some Bible studies with him and among his friends, and then did um, a, a conference in the church that he attend, attends. We were traveling around. He was showing us the country and so on. We went to Canberra, and we went to Sydney, and all the things that you do. We were in southeast Australia. Uh, and he said, you know, Jim, I was an economics major in college. And he said, um, we discussed the American economy. He said, you don't realize how, how, how fragile your economy is. Well, what have we been seeing even this last week in the stock market? Um, all it takes is one rumor and the stock market is gone. Yes or no? Yeah, domino. Yeah. Um, and frankly, folks, how much money do we owe to China, after all? How much money have we borrowed from China? And all they have to do is call in the debt. Um, got kind of silent. Um, what I'm suggesting is we've made our economy an idol. We've made our politics an idol. 
we have made our technological advancement an idol, but most of the technology has come from immigrants, or a great part of it anyway. Are you aware that Americans, native-born Americans, are hardly ever going to get doctorates now? Um, most doctoral programs are populated by um, international students. Um, why? Well, in large part, because you can't make as much money with a doctorate as you can with a master's. <laughs> uh, the, the guys with master's end up um, managing the guys with doctorates <laughs> and, and, and uh, making more money. So you quit with a master's because you'll make more money with a master's than a doctorate. Because they know that we have a good education system and they can learn something and take it back to their country. But uh, the point is, um, we're really not as secure as we think we are. We have this kind of veneer of security that we've, we've put too much trust in. Things are now, what, 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 does, what does Peter say? Unbelievers will say in the day of the Lord, things remain as they have since the beginning of creation. And they willfully forget that the world existed, that was, was wiped away by a flood. Yes? Um, the, the, the issue I'm making here, brothers and sisters, is not that you should not invest wisely. It's not that you should not vote wisely. It's not that you should uh, panic and, and run screaming down the street at what might be coming on the earth. It is that you must trust God even when he brings disaster. Let's read on. You will see it in the text. Verse 5. The people will be oppressed, each one by another, and each one by his neighbor. The youth will storm against the elder and the inferior against the honorable. When a man lays hold of his brother in his father's house, saying, You have a cloak, you shall be our ruler. And these ruins will be under your charge. He will protest on that day, saying, I will not be your leader, for in my house there is neither bread nor cloak. You should not appoint me ruler of the people. For, hmm? Yeah, yeah, it'll, it'll work. Either way, we'll... Uh, for Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen. And here's the reason. No leadership. Why? Because Jerusalem has... Uh, how did he say it? Um, Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen because their speech and their actions are against the Lord. Well, folks, where is there in our society a major part of uh, that, that's honored, a part of our society that's honored, which has not turned away from the Lord in its, in its speech and in its looks? Are you with me here? When a, so, so Romans chapter 1 when they knew God, they didn't honor him as, as God, nor were they thankful. No, one, no nation in history, I guess, has had a, as long a period of the free proclamation of the gospel without persecution as the United States has. And we have, in one short generation, we have abandoned it. Our, even our leaders say, I don't have anything I need forgiveness for. What is to trust? 
So, verse uh, 9, their expression of their faces bears witness against them, and they display their sin like Sodom. They do not even conceal it. Woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. But say to the righteous, there is hope. Yes? Uh, what, is, what is the outcome for the wicked in this kind of situation? Destruction. Yeah. Well, what's the outcome for the righteous? Are they going to live through the destruction? Are they not going to suffer destruction? They might die. Yeah, they could be martyred, but they're going to have eternal life. Ah, that's the point. Uh, say it again, old Richard. They could be martyred, but they're going to have eternal life. The, the point here, brothers and sisters, is this. If all that the Old Testament offers to the righteous is a long life in prosperity on the earth, Isaiah and Proverbs both undermine that message. Because in Proverbs chapter 1, the righteous is, they're planning to murder the righteous. Does that ever happen? Sure. Yeah. Uh, so if the righteous dies like the wicked, and yet God has promised long life to the righteous, if all that's in view is long life on the earth in the midst of prosperity and, and, and ease, then both Proverbs and Isaiah are undermining that message. The only thing that will solve the problem at this point is if he's promising to the Israel, to the righteous who die I want you to remember what the outcome of this period is going to be there's going to be such a, a horrible famine in the land that people will eat their children so is that only the wicked The righteous die like the wicked do in the, ju- in the, in the judgment. Here is the strange thing, folks. I, I've raised this before, but it's important that we raise it again. The strange thing is one of the curses of the, of the Mosaic Covenant is, is to die in Egypt. That's for people who have violated the covenant of the Lord. Yes? Yes, no? So where did Jeremiah die? In Egypt. Was he, was he wicked? No, he was a prophet of God. So if he's not wicked and a prophet of God, what's he doing dying in Egypt under the curse of God? The righteous do die in these judgments. So the promise must be beyond just a long life on the earth, beyond just prosperity on the earth. It must be life after death. Yes, Fred? Would you define righteous cannot mean Without sin, totally no, no. Yeah, yeah. What does that mean in the old? Uh, it's and a person who is tzaddik um, is. Um, I, I give an illustration of it: the story of Judah and Tamar. What did Tamar do in that story? Je- Genesis thirty-eight. Prostitute. Get. Yeah, it's it's worse than just prostitution, incest, and and one of the terms that's used for her when uh, Hira the what is that guy's name um, when he goes to take the kid from the sheep sharing to her she's not there and he asks is the Kadesha there is is where's the Kadesha that was here Kadesha in Hebrew means a holy woman or the the cult prostitute 
So she's engaging in idolatry. Are you with me here? Um, yet, when um, uh, Judah calls for her, finds out she's pregnant, calls for her to be brought forth, she must be burned. Of course, she must be burned. <laughs> uh, 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 she sends to him. See, see Judah is, is a, a worthy grandson of his grandfather Isaac who uh, is not the sharpest knife in the drawer because he can't figure out why um, Esau would be imitating Jacob's voice. Judah Judah said, what shall I send you as a payment? She said, one of the kids from from the shearing. He says, what shall I give you until I send the kid? She said, your staff, your cord, and your signet ring, which is his signature. It's his social security card. It's his, it's his power of attorney. She has the right to buy and sell everything he has. She's a sharp cookie. He's a dull knife. Uh, and uh, when she sent the, the cord and the staff and the, and the signet ring to him, she said, I'm pregnant by the man to whom these belong. See if you can recognize them. <laughs> Her, his response is, she is more righteous than I. So what is righteous? You do what's, Why did she do what she did? Yeah. Why did, why did she get in a position where, where she could have sex with Judah? So the family can remain in place. If Judah, see, Judah's son, first son, um, Ayer, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord killed him. The second son was also wicked, uh, Onan, and the Lord killed him. The third son was too young, um, but Judah's not going to give him to her. Why? Got to be something wrong with her. Yes. So I don't want my third kid died, dead. The, the larger issue, though, is Judah will not be faithful to the family. Why? He married a Canaanite wife. And he's becoming like a Canaanite. Genesis 38 breaks up the story of Joseph, 37 and 39. If you read from 37 to 39, 1 and skip chapter 38, you're, you're just continuing the very same story. Chapter 38 does break up the story of Joseph, but for a purpose, to explain why Joseph must go to Egypt because the Israelites left in Canaan will become Canaanites. You've got to get them out of there. And a Can- probably a Canaanite woman, Tamar, is more faithful to the family than, Ju- than, than Judah is. Without, without her son, there would be no David and there would be no Jesus. Because Jesus is a, is, is a descendant of her boy. Are you with me here? So right... It's, well, it's a term that's understood in terms of relationships. Uh, best definition I've heard of the righteousness of God is it, that it is that perfection of God by which he is faithful to himself and his covenant. It's, it's his characteristic, complete loyalty to himself and his covenant. And they add by which he, and I would add, I would vary it just a little bit from the definition, by which he saves and judges. So all of his righteousness is carried out in maintaining his own reputation, and in, because that's essential, and, and in maintaining his covenant relationships. 
So as we see through the book of, of Isaiah, and in fact in every one of the prophets, God's final word for Israel is never or rarely judgment. It's normally hope for the future. And that's how this passage is going to end in chapter 4. So let's read a little farther. Uh, Kay, you had your hand up a few minutes ago. I was just going to say, when I think about suffering today mm-hmm. for the Christian, the thing that comes to my mind immediately is those men in orange jumpsuits yeah. paraded out there because they would not renounce yeah. their faith mm-hmm. and calmly kneeling mm-hmm. down and allowing themselves to be beheaded yeah. without any resistance whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Romans 8, though broadens it, uh, consider that all things work together for good. Remember that verse 28 is in the midst of a context of suffering. So Romans 8, 17, I wish the last part of verse 17 weren't there. I, I could have counseled Paul and just leave that out. It'll be all right. But if we suffer with him, that we may be glorified for, with him. For I'm, I, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. And he explores that glory all the way down to verse 27. And then he says, and we know that all things work together for good, uh, but that good is not necessarily a better job. That good is defined in verse 29 as being conformed to the image of his son that he might be the first one among many brothers. So, so great is um, our destiny uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, is it 2? Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love him. He says in uh, Romans 8, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. So great is what is reserved for us. We probably can't even value it now. But so great is it that God spares us nothing to get us to that image of Christ. Does that make sense to you? So that means the headache you woke up with in the night. It means you name it. Are you with me here? When, when I got my new car and I got hit twice by the same car within weeks of getting it. <laughs> uh, um, it means our friend David Ham, who died a week and a half ago, uh, 48 years old in Phoenix, uh, pulled over on the side of the road, apparently had a massive heart attack and was gone. He, he, had, he had enough time to call 911. Um, he could find the 11 button on the, on the phone. But uh, call 911, they, he, but, but he didn't survive until they got there. Left a wife and, and two, was it two or three children? Two children. Um, and as we uh, uh, met Leanne yesterday at the service, uh, she said, I was astonished at the smile on her face. Were you? Um, and um, just confidence in the Lord. Are you with me here? It means every kind of suffering that may come. Because I think I have a great doctor and I think I can manipulate medical science so as to solve my problem, I have made an idol, idol out of it. Brother, I'm sorry. You. Uh, first Peter 4.1 talks about Jesus uh, suffering. Mm-hmm. We have this thing. Exactly. 
have you ever heard of the um, example theory of the atonement? Move your heads. No. Right? There are all kinds of theories of the atonement. There's a whole book just survey, surveying all of the various theories of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. Uh, and uh, the guy who wrote the book said uh, most of them have merit in them. There is biblical warrant for virtually every one of them. To focus, therefore, on only one aspect of what Jesus accomplished and to forget all the rest is to, is to really shortchange the work of Christ. He did die paying the ransom for our sins. That's, there's no question about that. But Peter is, is going to be one of the fine places to turn for the example theory of the atonement. As Jesus suffered the righteous for the unrighteous, he calls us, Peter does, calls us to suffer as the righteous among the unrighteous. It's part of, the, part of what's going on. He, this, this guy H.D. McDonald said the only theory of the atonement that has no value is the ransom to the Satan theory. <laughs> Jesus didn't die ransoming us from Satan. He ransomed us from the wrath of God, not from Satan. Satan's as much under the wrath of God as we are. So, so uh, verse 10 is the call for us to realize that the future is still strange on this earth. We don't know what the morrow holds. Um, enough, most of us have seen enough of life that when somebody says, how are you doing? <laughs> well, I think I'm doing pretty good. Nobody's told me otherwise. <laughs> I don't know what else to answer anymore. But if a 48-year-old close friend of my son and daughter, a daughter and son-in-law can die, my daughter's 47 and my son-in-law's 50, then how do I know how things are going? They live in Memphis. I, I'm not in immediate touch with them every moment of the day. Yeah, Chuck's sermon this morning is probably, in my opinion, one of the best I've heard him deliver. And as far as if you take the heart, the, the one admonition, you control nothing. Yeah. You won't have to worry about that's right. Country. Yeah. You control nothing. That's right. Not even yourself. Yeah. You don't control that. Yeah. So you have given up idolatry when you think you can control nothing. That's the goal. Exactly. Yeah. So verse eleven though goes the other side. <coughs> Woe to the wicked! It will go badly with him, for what he deserves will be done to him. Uh, Daryl, I'm sorry. idea that uh, we're controlling nothing. <laughs> the way Peter concludes it here where he says uh, after you've suffered for a little while, uh -huh. the God of all grace who called you to his <laughs> eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, establish you uh, to rule on the power mm -hmm. forever. Good. That's, that yeah. really yeah. encapsulates yeah. this whole yeah, and that, that spurred me to a thought that I've talked about before. I hardly know anything that I haven't said already. So every, from now on, everything you hear is repetition. So, but uh, um, you know, folks, this world is all the heaven the lost are ever going to know. And it's all the hell you and I are ever going to know. So how can we uh, begrudge them a little pleasure, a little comfort, in this world when their future is what it is. And if 
And if God's and if God's good plan has intended for us 30, 40, 50 years of hardship compared with eternity, what is that? Because I live so much in the nasty now and now, I want to be <laughs> I want to be delivered in, from it. Yes, I want comfort here. I don't want it then. I want it now. But in in light of the the suffering that is ahead for the lost and the glory that is ahead for us, can we not endure just 30, 40, 50 years of hardship if necessary? Um, so, verse 12, from this point, he then turns to the, uh, the, the uh, necessity of judgment. Oh, my people, their oppressors are children. Women rule over them. <laughs> I know, I knew, I knew that was coming. I was, I, I looked at my watch before I started verse 11 or 12, <laughs> hoping that it was closer to 12 o'clock. <laughs> uh, in the culture, the point of this is people who are completely unqualified are, are ruling. He's, he's not saying that all women are uncul- un- unqualified. He's saying that in the culture... You've got children and women. Um, I, I have had people say to me, well, what is the, what, where would the modern mission movement be without the women? I say, amen. Where would it be without the, men, the women? But where have the men been? Why have the men taken the responsibilities of missions? Well, it's the bigger thing. If you say women and children, who's left? Where are the men? Yeah. But, but all the men are, are either dead or they are fools. So verse five, 12 goes on. Oh, my people, those who guide you, lead you astray and confuse the direction of your paths. The Lord arises to contend. We're going back to the court now. The, the, right, the Lord arises to contend and stands to judge the people. The Lord enters into judgment with the elders and the princes of his people. It is you have, who have... Uh, devoured the the vineyard Israel shortly Jerusalem Judah in chapter 5 is going to be cast in the form of a vineyard and the rich are to are to harvest their vineyards yes but they're to leave some behind for the poor well no no well in the vineyard it's it's leave what you've what you've forgotten to get for some reason so they'll leave some behind for the... For, take, the take the story of Ruth uh, in Ruth 2. And Boaz even says to the harvesters, look, as you're harvesting, pull some stalks out and leave them for her to pick up. <laughs> leave some for the poor. Uh, instead, they've devoured not only the grapes of the vineyard, they've devoured the vineyard. They're devouring the people themselves. It's you who have devoured the vineyard. The plunder of the poor is in your houses. They've been plundering the poor? What are you going to get out of the poor? (laughs) What do you mean by crushing my people and grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord God of hosts. They're my people that you've been crushing. Verse 16, by the way, here, I've got a... 
one of the uh, great commentaries on the book of Isaiah is by a guy named J. Alec Motier. And he said, the leaders not only left no gleanings for the poor, they plundered what meager possessions the poor had, giving nothing, taking everything. And verse 16 will be illustrated well here. Um, Moreover, the Lord said, because the daughters of Zion are proud and walk with heads held high and seductive eyes and go along with mincing steps and tinkle the bangles of their feet. Therefore, the Lord will afflict the scalp of the daughters of Zion with scabs, take away all their beauty, everything they put their confidence in. And the Lord will make their foreheads bare. In that day, the Lord will take away the beauty of their anklets and headbands and crescent ornaments and dangling earrings, bracelets and veils and headdresses and ankle chains, sashes, perfume boxes, amulets, finger rings, nose rings, festal robes, outer tunics, cloaks, money, purses, hand mirrors, undergarments, turbans, and veils. Now it will come about that instead of sweet perfume, and and by the way, this is a doctrine that you need to get to be familiar with. It's going to show up on many occasions. It's already shown up in our passage, but we passed by it fairly quickly. It's called talionic justice. You know it from the quotation that occurs three times in the Old Testament, or or the concept, um, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. The idea is if I knock out your tooth, the, the worst you can do to me is to knock out my tooth. Does that make sense to you? You can do less, but, you, but the, the worst you can do is to reciprocate in the form of the wrong done. So what God is doing here is he's reciprocating in the form of the wrong done. It will come about that instead of sweet perfume, there will be putrefaction. Instead of a belt, a rope. Instead of well-set hair, a plucked-out scalp. Instead of fine clothes, donning of sackcloth, burlap. One of the translations reads, and rightly so. And branding instead of beauty. Your men will fall by the sword, your mighty ones in battle, and her gates will lament and mourn, and deserted she will sit on the ground for seven women will take hold of one man in that day saying we will eat our own bread and wear our own clothes only let us be called by your name take away our reproach so many men have died there are only there's only one man for seven women the good news is we have chapter four that follows the end word of God for his people is almost never judgment it's almost always hope. May I read through this quickly? I'd like to end on some hope. In that day, you have the perhaps the word branch capitalized. That's, it's not clear that that's the way it ought to be read. Some fine commentaries read it that way as a reference to Messiah, but the poetic parallelism suggests a different point. That is that the land which has been devastated by the sin of Israel is going to be fruitful again. So the branch of the uh, Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth will be uh, the pride and the adornment of the survivors of Israel. It, is, it will come about that he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who is recorded for life in Jerusalem, when the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purged the bloodshed of Jerusalem from her midst, 
by the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning. Then the Lord will create over the whole area of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day, even smoke and the brightness of a flaming fire by night. What's this sound like? Exodus. Because what God has done in the past, brothers and sisters, is a model of what he will do in the future, but he's too creative to do the same thing the same way twice. Which so, is that, that day? Which day the, the, the day of the Lord. Day of the Lord. The day of the Lord has two elements to it. Uh, Israel tended to think of only one, namely great glory and salvation. But it also means judgment for the wicked. And it's a pretty bad judgment of the wicked, as you can see. Uh, so, so what he's holding out for them, by the way, we're still in a passage which is holding out the possibility of repentance for these folks. What well, we've got chapter 5 ahead. There is hope. Respond to the hope. Join the group that's in, three, in chapter 3, verse 10. Leave the group that's in chapter 3, verse 11. Uh, but he goes on. When the Lord is washed, uh, then, verse 5, then the Lord, I, I, I did want to make one more comment. God's salvation has not changed. The means and the methods may change, but God's saving work has not changed. So he will always have something tying the new saving work to the old saving works. There's a chain of God's saving work uh, all the way through Scripture. And as, this, as we anticipate the coming of the day of the Lord and its hope and salvation, we will understand it. We will know what to hope for. We will know how to trust in light of the 430 years of slavery in Egypt. <laughs> because that ended in salvation. So finally then, um, verse 6, there will be a shelter, a chuppah, which is a fascinating word for any of you. Fred will immediately respond to chuppah. This, this is the what, what Jewish observant Jewish couples get married under a chuppah, a kind of a tent. Um, uh, the, 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 there will be a chuppah to give shade by the, from the heat by day and refuge and protection from the storm and the rain. In 40 years in the wilderness, Israel never slept in complete darkness for the, for the fire of the Lord was over the tabernacle and in the 40 years in the wilderness they never marched under the hot blazing sun entirely because the cloud was always present during the day and they never missed a meal meal. but that's the future of those who will as in verse 10 hope for the goodness that will come to them for they will eat the fruit of their actions it's also what will be taken away from those who are wicked, it will go badly with him, for what he deserves will be done to him. So it's a call to repentance. And to that extent, the call of a passage like this for us at Stonebriar Community Church is to give up on all the things that we think we can control about the future and look to God, rest in his providence at every moment. Sometimes his providence is hard to bear. You will perhaps know the, the, the book, was it by Sheldon Van Auken, A Severe Mercy? His severity for us is always merciful. It's always merciful. My task is to trust that mercy when I can't find it because it's always there. But also 
to give up on everything I thought I could control. Let's close with prayer. Father, you know I've always been able to trust you when the bank account is big enough. Um, I don't worry about trouble when the bank, bank account is big enough. But you know equally that when the bank account is empty, I don't know how to trust you. So teach me, Father, along with each of us, what is the area of our lives that we put our hope in, put our trust in, and then to, to, to walk away from that and to find our hope and confidence in you. <clears throat>